0: Times podcast, the Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg and this week Sweden and the Covid crisis. Ever since the start of the pandemic the Scandinavian country has gone its own way, led by epidemiologist Anders Tegnell, the public health official who has been determined to avoid the lockdowns we've seen in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. But at what cost? It is true that Sweden's toll of around 8,000 Covid-related deaths is far lower than Britain's 67,000. But most commentators would argue that the two countries are so different in terms of population density and lifestyle, you're not really comparing like with like. A far better comparison would be Denmark, Norway and Finland. And the number of Covid deaths in Sweden is four times greater than in its three Nordic neighbours combined. We'll hear from a woman who believes her elderly mother was among thousands of older Swedish people who passed away in care homes because of guidelines suggesting they be given end-of-life palliative care rather than potentially life-saving treatment.
1: It's still going on. So many people are dying in Sweden. I don't know what's going on. But something is
2: wrong in Sweden.
0: And we'll hear from a hospital consultant who agrees.
2: That this happened, uh, that people did not get to get cheap treatment that could have given them another chance for, for a longer life, that's for sure.
0: Plus the first UK interview with a senior medical researcher who was so disgusted by Sweden's approach to coronavirus she quit the country.
3: I left now and I'm happy I did. I never thought that I would be relieved to leave Sweden.
0: All that coming shortly. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't like most other media organisations. We aren't owned by a tycoon or an oligarch. We're not part of anyone's global empire and we aren't reliant on corporate advertising. Instead, we ask people like you to take out a subscription to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It's fantastic value at just £36 a year. You'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, we've spoken before on this podcast about Sweden's response to coronavirus, and we make no apologies for returning to it. The country's relatively laid-back approach, espoused by Anders Tegnell, which has seen bars, restaurants and gyms and many schools remain open and the wearing of face masks shunned, has had vocal supporters in the UK, mostly on the political right. Sweden's approach was also hailed by President Trump's coronavirus advisor, Scott Atlas. But Kelly Bjorkland has been gathering a series of troubling stories from Sweden for the Byline Times. Highlighting how, since the pandemic started, residents in old people's homes who show Covid symptoms have been routinely prescribed palliative care designed to make the end of their life comfortable, rather than being taken to hospital for potentially life-saving treatment. This didn't happen by chance. It was the result of a series of guidelines issued at both national and regional level. You'll also hear from Dr Anders Janssen, a heart and lung specialist who has been a vocal opponent of Tegnell's policy from the outset. But first, Kelly.
4: One of the first cases that came into the public light in Sweden was a case of Jan Andersson, who his family members realised that he was being given palliative care when he had suspected COVID. And the doctors had not consulted with, with Mr. Anderson, nor with his family members. He had not given permission and he didn't even know that he was getting this care. He had never received an assessment from a doctor in person. He never met a doctor. So his family members ordered that the palliative treatment be stopped and he started to recover. And the family brought this case to the media. The Swedish media covered it later in the summer. um, International media covered it. But despite this and the fact that multiple other people died as a result of palliative care without their family members or the patients being informed or consenting to it, none of the authorities put a stop to it. What's really disturbing is that this information is in the public domain, it's happening, and the government, the public health agency, the National Board of Health and Welfare, and the regions, there's no one putting an end to it. It continued. And no one, I I don't think, understands if it continues to this day or not. You know, it's unfortunate that people had to wait until the result of a commission uh, report to come out because this information was already available.
0: There was one case that you identified, I think it was at the Valor clinic in Sweden. Just talk me through that one.
4: I have reviewed the medical records of a patient who was treated at that clinic and spoken with the patient's family members. And that patient received in her journal the notes that the person he or she would not be sent to the hospital in the event of respiratory infection or other illness, and that they would be directed to receive palliative care instead. And it contained information about what that palliative care would be. And this was written in March.
0: And in that case, Kelly, the patient had requested hospital treatments should the need arise. That's what made that case so shocking.
4: Yes, and the the family member says that the patient, other than having high blood pressure, is a healthy individual, elderly, but healthy individual, and had the desire to have hospital care in the event that it was needed. And this decision to be marked as palliative was not discussed with the family or with the patient in advance of this journal entry, essentially putting this person out of the possibility to receive hospital care. And we're not only talking about ICU care here, we're talking about any hospital care. So in the event of an illness separate from COVID, they would not receive hospital care. And I think that's what is not often understood or reported is that it's not only related to you will not get a ventilator if you need one, if you have COVID what several doctors have told me who have been given these treatment guidelines and instructions to care plan for patients is that if, for example, needed care for IV antibiotics, which could only be given in a hospital for an unrelated infection, you would not receive it.
0: Indeed, and there was a case, wasn't there, where a patient had broken her arm, I think, and had a urinary tract infection as well. But because of her age, she was also denied hospital treatments.
4: Yes, and that's Ava Berman's mother. Ava Berman is the editor of the Askolstuna newspaper in Sweden, and she wrote about what happened to her mother for her paper. She died th- this summer, and Ava said, you know, send my mother to the hospital. She's in terrible pain. She fell, she broke her arm, and they refused to to do so. And she describes in her own words an incredibly sad and and traumatic story of of what happened. But they were able to say goodbye to their mother while she received palliative care. And they're, they're grateful for that because so many folks died alone in Sweden after receiving treatment like this. But it was also her newspaper who in May published these guidelines that were used where multiple sources said that they had already been triaging patients out of care and to not be designated for hospital care. And there was no reaction from the government on it. There was not really reaction from other media on how widespread this was. And that is also a failure.
0: The statistics are quite damning, aren't they, that 90% of the deaths in Sweden from Covid were of people aged over 70 and more than half of those deaths of people over 70 happened in long-term residential care where guidelines were issued which very much encouraged the medical profession to give people palliative care, end-of-life care, rather than potential life-saving intervention in hospital.
4: Right, because oxygen is not available in elderly care or in in nursing homes. In a lot of cases, oxygen helps patients to recover. And as Dr. Tallinger said when we spoke about this case, what he was ordered was either patients are palliative or they are a candidate for a hospital ICU care, and they would recover. But there was no middle road for sending patients to the hospital to receive oxygen or to receive other care that could help them improve. The assessment was just very... Clear, black, or white. If you had a prognosis of recovering from ICU care, or and if not, then you would go have palliative care. And you know, as I wrote, and what a lot of people have asked is that why was this field hospital in Stockholm with 600 beds empty? They did not receive a single patient.
0: And Dr. John Tallinger, who you referenced, was a, a Swedish whistleblowing medic who decided that he could no longer operate within the Swedish healthcare system, and in fact now works in Denmark. I interviewed him for a piece I wrote about this for the Byline Times some time ago. Let's bring in Dr Anders Janssen now. And Anders, from a medical perspective, how do you sum up what has been going on in terms of people in care homes in long-term residential care in Sweden?
2: Well, I think that the appalling part of it is that, uh, as also the, the investigation by EVO, uh, the I don't really know what to call it in English, but that's the the authority that tries to establish whether errors have been made by a specific doctor or by a healthcare unit.
0: In the UK, that might be the CQC or the Healthcare Inspectorate? Uh,
2: the Healthcare Inspection, okay. Uh, because their main criticism, which I really share, is that the major problem was that many of these old people in the in the care homes, they didn't even get to see a doctor at all, not even a digital visit, which means that we don't even know what they died from. They could have had any kind of other infection when they got their fever in the care home, but... But since the, there was COVID in the care home, uh, people just assumed that they had COVID and that they would not benefit from, from hospital
0: care. That's really shocking, isn't it? And as a, as a medical professional, I mean, that's, that's really quite chilling to hear that, isn't it?
2: I mean, all of these citizens that happen to live in a home and can't take full care of themselves uh, have a right to have a medical assessment by a doctor if they if they feel if they fall seriously ill. Of course, we, we're a welfare society; that's what we're about, and we have failed that uh, obviously in a large number of cases. It is very sad. It's appalling, and it should never have happened. The basis is that everybody has to have an assessment because some of these patients might have actually have been better off staying in their home, but nobody even made the assessment. It's very sad. I, can, I can't say anything else.
4: The National Board of Health and Welfare's guidelines used to state earlier in the pandemic that oxygen should be measured in patients and that patients could receive oxygen In the hospital, like it it said, you shall give oxygen. And then their treatment guidelines, and this is the national guidelines, were changed to state that you can possibly try oxygen treatment. So it went from you shall give oxygen treatment to you can try oxygen treatment. And it was a change in that language, which also removed the need to measure the saturation. And this was, a lot of doctors told me that this was a way to make it no longer obligatory to treat patients who had breathing difficulties with oxygen, which only happens at hospital. So it was a way to not send patients to hospital.
0: What you're describing does sound perilously close. To some kind of euthanasia, doesn't it? Would, do you think that's a fair comment?
2: I wouldn't call it euthanasia for several reasons. Euthanasia, by definition, is something that the patient wants themselves. Uh, so that's that's the first thing. Otherwise, it's mad. But I think there is a whole chain of human mist- mistakes in thinking here. That's the explanation, because of course, the National Board of Healthcare, they came out with guidelines that were supposed to help triaging patients in or out of the ICU department in case of an absolute lack of ICU beds. It seems that those those were implemented beforehand, or at least that people started prioritizing earlier than the authority actually claims that we ran out of ICU beds. So that's one thing. And this is the sum of individual assessments from the doctors that were looking at a specific patient and trying to trying to establish whether he, this patient should have an ICU bed or not. And the, the problem here is that in Sweden, we are always short of ICU beds. So this kind of judgment call is made even on a regular Saturday evening, when the ICU department is almost full and you get this 85-year-old patient in and you have to ask yourself, well, can I really use make use of this ICU bed now? What if I get a 24-year-old in an hour that needs this place? So Swedish doctors are used to the situation of having a lack of beds, which means that what happened now, I think, is that every single decision didn't seem that much different from your everyday choice. It's just that these choices became so much more common. You had to make them every day, several times instead of once once a week or once every two weeks. It becomes harder to get an ICU bed. It becomes harder, but what I mean is that if you would ask the doctor that was in the ICU department making the choice for a specific patient, he might not even see it as that we've suddenly changed the way we work. It's just that the, the pressure of the influx of patients would change the threshold. You don't necessarily need a clear statement that now we should not admit people with a biological age above 80. It starts to drift anyway.
0: I suppose the fear here is that patients who might otherwise have lived were condemned to die in care homes without any appropriate medical intervention simply because they were deemed by the state to be too old?
4: At elderly care homes, there is not the capacity to provide medical care that people can receive in hospital. And as a result of not receiving hospital care, yes, I I mean, I think the evidence shows that elderly people, and likely more that we don't even know about yet, have died because they didn't have interventions. And they're people who potentially could have lived.
2: That's unfortunately obvious that that was the case. There were many people whose lives could have been saved by easy measures like oxygen. But also, of course, people that were act- that actually had a bacterial infection, like like the case you were discussing with urinary tract infection, mm-hmm. that is easily treatable. And many of the people that never got a, a doctor's assessment probably died from issues that could have been taken care of cheaply and easily, and definitely not in in need of ICU, but a hospital usual hospital bed. And and that's the great tragedy. The the implication that this was something that was uh, actively chosen by authorities, uh, that's a much more difficult question to, to answer. But that this happened, uh, that people did not get to get cheap treatment that could have given them another chance for, for a longer life, uh, that's for sure. We know that.
0: Dr Anders Janssen, and before that Kelly Bjorklund, I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, holding money and power to account without fear, without favour. But we can only do that with your help. The whole thing, the website, Byline TV, this podcast, is funded by subscriptions to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You can get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, one of the cases that Kelly Bjorkland wrote about in Byline Times involved Suzanne Mateuzzi from Stockholm, who knows all about the consequences of the policies and guidelines we've been hearing about. Her 96-year-old mother, Ulla, died the Wednesday after Easter when the care home where she lived reported that she was experiencing shortness of breath. Suzanne's requests for her mother to be taken to hospital were ignored.
1: The Saturday... Before Easter they sent us a picture of our mother and she was okay. She was sitting in her wheelchair and we didn't hear anything on Sunday or Monday, but Tuesday they phoned me and told me that she had trouble breathing and she told me she has gave my mother two kinds of medication, morphine and anxiety medication. And I was screaming to her, please take my mother to a hospital. But she said, we would take care of her here at the nursing home. I thought they would help my mother. I thought they would help her breathing, but they didn't. So she died in the morning of the... Wednesday, the fifteenth of April, we only knew she was ill for sixteen hours i I wanted them to send her to the hospital if she had trouble breathing, so she shouldn't die but she was old. My mother, I know she was old, but this happened so fast. I asked for the journal. And it said she agreed when they talked with her that they could give her medication. But my mother had such dementia, she couldn't talk, my mother. No one called us. We are three daughters. No one called us and asked us about the medication.
0: And from your point of view, your mother was in no-fit mental condition to make a decision because she had dementia. And when you were told about her condition, you had specifically asked that she should be taken
1: to hospital. Yes, I screamed at her, take her to a hospital. No, we take good care of her here. And
0: she died. We have heard on this podcast about guidelines which encouraged medical staff and nursing staff to keep older people in care homes, even when they were ill, rather than take them to hospital. This sounds like what happened to your mum. You
1: know... In Stockholm, they built a military tent. Yes. So they have 500 beds, and every bed had oxygen, but they never used that that hospital for the people. They could have sent my mother to that. She didn't get the real care. It's still going on. So many people are dying in Sweden. I don't know what's going on, but something is wrong in Sweden. Why are so many people dying now? Over 8,000, and they say the most are elderly, old people. They don't get help.
0: Of course, we don't know if your mum had COVID for sure, but do you believe that she should have been at least given the chance to go to hospital and be given oxygen to have the possibility of being kept alive
1: i think she should have the right care and if she was dying she we would would be with her and hold her hand but we we wasn't there I think it. this is so wrong. They have, it's, we are suffering from, We, we have, it's a big sadness for all of us. It's hard because we, our sister feels like she was lying in a room all alone and no one, and couldn't, and we couldn't be there with her. It is horrible. And something we can carry the whole life with us is anxiety. It's sad.
0: Oh, your heart goes out, doesn't it, to Suzanne? How can it not do? Her mum, Ulla, by the way, was never tested for Covid, and the family were told that she died of dementia. But that doesn't explain why she was given palliative care when the family asked for her to be taken to hospital. The Byline Times contacted the Stockholm city manager responsible for the nursing home where Ulla lived and asked why she had been designated for palliative care, but we got no response. In our previous podcast about Sweden and Covid-19 in October, We reported that opponents of the country's official coronavirus policy risked a backlash in both their professional and personal life. Dr Nila Brusselaars is an associate professor at Sweden's leading medical research university, the Karolinska Institute, and she decided to quit the country and head home to Belgium because of how it's dealt with the pandemic. You'll also hear from Keith Begg, an Irish expat who founded Media Watchdogs of Sweden which aims to challenge the consensus that has formed around the official policy. First, though, Neela, and why she's no longer living in Stockholm.
3: I must admit that I was already thinking to move back to Belgium in like a couple of years. I've been in Sweden for eight years, but then now... With this whole corona crisis, I was actually really upset by the way that the people handled it and the complete lack of discussion. And if you just dare to raise questions like, why is Sweden not following the advice of the WHO? You just ran into a wall and people were really reacting aggressively. And so even among scientists, there was just no discussion at all. It was just like, yeah, no, those, uh, those in charge, they are right. Don't question it. And for me, that's a really weird thing because as a researcher, you're supposed to question everything and turn everything around and you, yeah, everyone has other expertise and experiences. So it's just, that's the fun part about research and that you ask questions and, and that you discuss and, you know, solve something together. And now it was like, no, don't ask questions. That was for me a very harsh reality, actually.
0: So you were one of a small number of scientists who, at the start of the coronavirus pandemic in Sweden, raised questions and said Swedish policy should be based on evidence, it should be based on science. What kind of reaction did you get personally?
3: Well, it was like every time that you try to bring it up that people reacted very negatively or they just were giving comments like, we should all, uh, we work for a government institution, so we should follow or support the current policy and don't question it. And that wasn't without naming me, but then it was very clear that it was against me. And it was just so, so weird that even among scientists, one of the biggest medical universities in the world, that there was just no room for discussion or no room for worry and all the countries in Europe they were preparing in March or earlier they should yeah they should all have prepared earlier already but like everyone was coming in action in the UK in Belgium all over the place they were just preparing and in Sweden they're like oh everything under control the numbers are decreasing and it's like no you can't say that the numbers are decreasing if they're going up every day then they're still going up So they were just continuing to say like, oh, there is no community spread. Oh, there is no problem. Everything under control. And like, yeah, but it is not. And what if it really gets worse? You have to get prepared. And they don't. They didn't. And they still don't really do anything. It's like, okay, the accident is happening, slow motion. And let's just wait and see. Let's just wait for two years when we will see what is happening. Like, yeah, but that's too late.
0: You raise particular questions about the way in which people who had covid symptoms might be able to go out and infect other people
3: well yeah so, so even even when, when you tested positive when you had symptoms yourself you're supposed to go into quarantine but there's no problem to drop your kids off at school and go to the supermarket and if you don't know that nobody was wearing a mask which is still the case and it's like yeah but how can you stop it and they are still from the health authorities they're still claiming that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread is only contributing to a small proportion of all infections. And we know it's almost half of the infections, which is from people who don't know yet that they're sick. And indeed, children, I think it's from October, only from October, that if your parents are sick, that you are supposed to stay at home in quarantine. Well, we do know, we do know since March that they are, that kids could be infectious.
1: Wow.
0: I mean, that listening from a UK perspective, where many people are critical of the UK government's response to coronavirus. But as you describe that, that sounds absolutely incredible in a modern, sophisticated, educated European country.
3: Well, yeah. And it's those myths which, is, which are still around, like kids are not infectious or, you know, yeah, it's not erogenous. They're still claiming that it's not erogenous, that mouth masks don't work aerogenus is just in the air. So if you breathe you spread the virus. But like if we mean, know it's an aerogenus infection since March or earlier. I think that the Chinese already said it was aerogenus in, in January, February. And then they are still claiming it's in Sweden that it's oh it's not aerogenes. Like yeah but why? Why? And yeah there is so much evidence there that they're just ignoring and from the health authorities. It's the health authorities who are spreading incomplete or misleading information.
0: And this belief that it's not aerogenous is presumably why Sweden until now has resisted the wearing of masks, which have now become commonplace elsewhere in Europe. I know that there's a proposal that from January mask wearing on public transport will become compulsory, but it's taken a long time to get to this point.
3: And then why January? Why not now? They're also working on a law. They, they said that a couple of months ago that they're working on a law which will be in place to ban big gatherings. It will be active in summer 2021. So it's like, why do you postpone things that long? If they do take action, the same thing with the recommendation with a mouth mask, it will be in place end of January. It's still a month. Why don't you do it now? And it will again be a recommendation and not something mandatory.
0: Really, so not compulsory, just a, a guideline.
3: Again, only a guideline. So in Sweden, they have been at such a good starting position for this pandemic, a highly developed country, a functioning healthcare system, highly educated population as well, and especially a very low population density. And then they still made such a mess out of it. They could have been like New Zealand. They could, especially when they, they would have uh, collaborated with the other Nordic countries, they could have been the best country in Europe. And yeah, we all know that, that that's not the case.
0: Mila, you're not a native Swede. As an outsider, if I might put it like that, to the country and having witnessed this, how do you explain Sweden's reaction?
3: In the beginning, I, I yeah, of course, you have to educate the public, you have to inform them. Most people in this world didn't even know that epidemiologists existed before this pandemic. So you do have to give good information. So among the public you know the the people in the streets the neighbors you could say like okay they don't know but then it's not only that because even the scientists even highly educated professors they were from the beginning like the health authorities are correct and you shouldn't question them so i think a bit that idea like sweden is perfect and you shouldn't criticise it. And for me as a Belgian, that's a really weird thing because Belgians are never proud of anything. You know, we are extremely down to earth and we will, you will never hear a Belgian saying that they're proud of being Belgian. In Sweden, you really have that thing like, oh, Sweden is really good and you shouldn't criticise it. And in some situations, I noticed a bit of that, but never as extreme as now.
0: What did it feel like for you, Neela, as somebody who's lived and worked there to feel that you could no longer live in the country that you'd made home, albeit for a, perhaps a temporary period. How did it feel to have to pack your bags and go?
3: It felt a big relief to be gone. And yeah, it's also from a, a personal perspective, because yeah, I, I heard about people really close to me who were denied healthcare. Because, oh, you're not a risk patient. I heard from people, just, you know, friends or, or a colleague as well of a friend of mine who died at home, a young person in his 50s who died at home because he was not a risk patient, so he was not allowed to go to, to the hospital. And then it really becomes close. So I, I, as far as I know, I have not been infected with COVID. So I'm, yeah, I'm lucky, luckily. But um, just the idea that if I get sick, that I would not be guaranteed health care For me that's really scary and yeah, especially if you know, if they would send me home with my toddler to say, like, oh, it cannot be COVID because he's a he's a child and they don't get COVID. And here in Belgium, everyone just they use hand alcohol, they use mouth mask. Of course there are also people breaking the rules and having lockdown parties and everything, but at least the majority of the population agrees that this is something serious. And that is not a good thing that people die in elderly homes and in, in Sweden it's just like oh yeah they would have died anyway yeah everyone dies but you can't just say that yeah they would have died anyway for me it was just such a heartless reaction and the thing that people are still that there are still people doing like oh yeah it's just like influenza nothing bad you know it is something bad millions of people died because of this pandemic so yeah we shouldn't just be like oh everything is perfect
0: Keith Begg, there has been a coronavirus commission now in Sweden, looking into some of the circumstances around this pandemic. How far has that coronavirus commission gone to putting right some of what you regard as the untruths that have been put out there by the the Swedish media?
5: The report is scathing, Adrian, but... Everybody in the authorities here are just passing the blame. There's nobody willing to take accountability or responsibility for this damning report. Now, it was a stinging official coronavirus report, and it was released on December the 15th. And it clearly showed that the Swedish government failed to sufficiently protect the elderly and that they are ultimately responsible for the pandemic's effects on the country. And it also mentioned that Sweden's handling of the pandemic had major shortcomings and that the authorities and specifically the Swedish public health authority, the FHM, proved to be totally unprepared and ill-equipped to meet the pandemic. And what's very interesting in, in uh, this report is that the head of the commission, a chap called Mats Nalen, said that the blame for these structural shortcomings in Sweden's system could be placed on... Many of the authorities and organizations, so it was a complete widespread pointing of the finger. It wasn't just to one authority or organization it was to literally a whole system approach and what was also inter- interesting is that Mr. Mellon stresses that the government governs the country and therefore the ultimate responsibility has to rest with the government and what we're seeing now is The media is coming out in great criticism, but the person who actually presented the report on TV with the experts was Lena Hallengren, the state minister, who has been absolutely lethargic in reacting to the protection of the elderly. And the responsibility falls firmly on her shoulders,
0: but no admission that mistakes have been made. By spreading the blame so widely it kind of makes it difficult doesn't it then to isolate and identify particular individuals people like for example the state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell who has been so very closely associated with Sweden's approach
5: well i don't know if that's true because all the heads of the different organisations be it the the health and safety organisation be it the swedish public health authority be it the government they have all been very visible And they have set out the recommendations that have clearly failed. So in this report, they said one of the biggest blames for the spread of the infection into the elderly homes was as a result of allowing an uncontrolled spread throughout Sweden. And if you go back only a month ago, Adrian, Anders Tegnell proudly proclaimed that there would not be a second wave here. So he diminished people's responsibility and contradicted what even armchair epidemiologists knew. And most damning of all, he said that Sweden would be less affected than its Nordic neighbours, especially Norway. So this has turned out to be completely false. So you can pinpoint the people, the heads of the organisations who are making absolutely bombastic claims. And to be honest, very few, if actually none, have come true.
0: When we spoke last, Keith, we spoke about people who had been shunned by their friends and family just for making comments on Facebook that could be construed as critical of the Swedish health response to coronavirus. I wrote a piece about it for the Byline Times. Some people would speak to me only on condition of anonymity. Other people who were critical of Anders Tegnell and the government approach wouldn't even allow me to quote them at all anonymously and there was this sense of a state of fear in Sweden and a mainstream media refusing to accept alternative voices. Has that started to change now in light of this report by the Commission? It is changing Adrian
5: but it's changing slowly. You know you will get uh, media outlets who are very very critical but then the same media outlet will publish something incredible. Like, for instance, Anders Tegnell feels that the new strain of the virus in Sweden, we have no cases, or that it won't affect Sweden in such a way. So, we still have a major problem in Sweden where inexperienced experts or self proclaimed experts are given the complete limelight on the media, and they're never, ever questioned. They're just allowed to continue ad nauseum with no critical journalism. Now, it has changed a little bit since I last spoke to you, but still, these so-called experts are just constantly given the media waves to just talk about what they might think is the reality, when in fact, it's completely the
0: opposite. Nila presumably you were attracted to Sweden you wanted to go and live and work there because it was seen as a quite a sophisticated liberal democracy is that a fair thing to say
3: well, yeah, and it's it's always been yeah. It was even described as a paradise for epidemiologists, and because they have such a goldmine of of health data, and yeah, th- that's for me was one of the reasons I went there because of you know the high level of epidemiology. Since epidemiology is a very new field in Belgium, it only exists for a couple of years. They have so many epidemiologists, they have so many researchers and resources, also for the testing and the tracing, and they're just not using it. So many people, uh, not only epidemiologists offered their help offered their expertise and they just it was sort of, ah, we don't need it and so they're still not doing yeah you know, they're basically still not doing contact tracing for example so many epidemiologists offered their help in modeling and no we don't need it.
0: Has your experience made you view Sweden differently?
3: Yeah yeah and it makes me sad it makes me really sad it's been a big part of my adult life and the biggest part of my professional life even yeah, I, I do feel that I'm mourning about having to leave Sweden. And, you know, I think the whole reaction to this pandemic has caused bigger harm to the country than the actual pandemic because so many people are afraid. So many people have run into such emotional uh, encounters. Three weeks ago, a friend of mine, they they basically took his mask off his face because he had to go into a clinic and the security guy Oh, the security person says, oh, masks are not allowed. So he just, the security person just took away the mask and threw it on the ground. It, like, it's just completely insane, the things that are happening. And people are still thinking that, oh, everything is normal. Sweden is so good. The Swedish approach is the best. Oh, we're doing so good. And it's like, no, you're not. We're approaching 10,000 deaths in Sweden as well. You're not doing great. Um, but yeah, so it it it's, has changed my view drastically on Sweden and on the Swedish society and you probably also heard the thing that Tegnell has also been blaming it on the foreigners the whole time I'm like how can you say that how can you blame the foreigners how can you say things like always oh, the foreigners who brought it in the elderly care because they're unhygienic I'm a foreigner as well I may look like a Swede I'm a European I'm not a Swede so I'm also one of those foreigners.
0: It's interesting that phrase you use though that your mourning, maybe mourning for the Sweden that you thought you knew but found out was rather different.
3: It is, it is, it is sad that, yeah, I, I left now and I'm happy I did. I never thought that I would be relieved to leave Sweden, yeah, and to just go back home. So, yes, mourning is indeed the fear. Also, just you know, you, I tried. I did try to bring in my help and my expertise. And it seems that it doesn't work. And, you know, the the harder you try and, you know, you offer your help and there's just still ignoring you as a scientist, as a person, as an individual also living in that country. And while they just keep producing statements, which are factually incorrect. And yeah, it's, it's been emotionally difficult this year. I know it's been difficult for everyone around the world, but I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's scarce. It's something that you, you can't just turn the page and, and live on. So many friendships have been broken. I even know about relationships that, that were problems in inside couples because, you know, one person thinks Sweden is doing great and the other one is like, yeah, no, look at the international media. So, yeah.
0: Nila Brusselas and Keith Begg. My name is Adrian Goldberg, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the Byline Times podcast throughout 2020. Why not make it a New Year's resolution to subscribe to the Byline Times? Just £36 a year for our fantastic monthly newspaper, which funds this podcast, our website, and Byline TV. More details at bylinetimes.com. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Cheers.